It is a story that most of us have heard or watched or read since we were very little. It's been made and remade into movies and Broadway shows and musicals. And as far from reality as some of the particulars of the story are, it is a fairy tale that still tells us a great deal about human nature and about our interactions with one another. It is beauty and the beast. Oh, isn't that a great story? It's a favorite of a lot of people. A lot of people love it as a children's story, but there's a lot in that story that even adults see as exciting. And if you've seen the movie or seen the musical, by the way, the next three weeks, spoiler alert, you're going to figure out the story real quick. If you haven't seen it, sorry, but if you haven't seen it, you're like one of eight in America. But it's one of those stories that, whether you've seen it before or not, when you, when you get to a certain scene, it's so exciting. It's the scene where everything just comes alive and they begin to sing the song, Be Our Guest. And I mean, there's forks dancing, and there's napkins jumping all over the place, and Lee and I have been privileged to see the Broadway show. It's almost scary, it's over the top. There's like plates like flying across the place. It's something else. But that particular part of the story draws people in because it's so much what we want. That, that excitement and that welcome and, and that thrill of, of just welcoming someone in. It's really exciting. And even if you've seen the movie or seen the play a bunch of times and you know it's coming, you still look forward to it because you know you're just going to feel better for those two or three minutes while that song is going on throughout that particular story. Hold that thought just for a minute. And we'll come back to it in, in just a second. Sometimes as Christians, we get very frustrated. We get confused. We've got someone we work with or someone in our family, or someone in our neighborhood, and maybe it's someone who wrote down those cards at the beginning of the year, the three people we're going to try to reach this year. It's someone that we we actually make the step, we, we, we get up our courage, we go and talk to them, we, we invite them to church, or we invite them to study the Bible, and we just expect, because we actually made the step to talk to them, that not only are they going to want to come to church, but I mean the first time they're there, they're going to run down the aisle during the invitation song, and they're going to be baptized that very morning. And that, that's all it's going to take. And then they actually say, no. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating because we want so much for that person to study the Bible, to grow in their faithfulness to God, to become a Christian, to be a more faithful Christian, maybe to return to faith. And we've made the effort. We've actually reached out to them and and put ourselves out there. And and they say, no, I'm not trying to downplay the frustration. It's, It's a very real thing. It's a very real frustration. But have you ever thought about the other side of the ledger? What about them? For the next three Sundays, beginning today, we have a series of lessons we're calling Be Our Guest. And the subtitle, as you've seen in the newsletter and and on the cards we have Wednesday night, is Moving People from Fearful to Faithful. This morning, we're going to think about killing the beast. If you've seen Beauty and the Beast, you understand why. Next Sunday morning, Lord willing, we're going to use a phrase from that movie where someone just says, thank you. And we're going to think about what it takes to break the cycle. And then, Lord willing, two weeks from today, when someone moves to faithful, how do we welcome them home? How do we make them more than just a guest, but a part of the family?
And we're going to use some things from Beauty and the Beast as, as our background because that's, that's kind of the story we're, we're basing this off of. But I want you to know that these three lessons are not meant to be some formula. In other words, I'm not going to give you, take these two or three steps, say these two or three words, and everything's going to be fantastic of whomever you talk to. This is not meant to be some tip or some technique or some class or some perfect system. Because every person is different. Every person has a different personality. Every person has a different history. Every person has a different uh, view of the church and of Christ and of Christians. But there are some principles that we all need to have in place if we're going to do our best to reach people and move them from a place of fear to a place of faith. In reality, for someone to come to church, as we say, to become a Christian, is usually a pretty scary thing. It could be something they're past. It could be something they've heard from around them. We'll get, get back to that in just a few minutes. But it's a scary thing. It's The fear is real. You and I know the good side of the church so much that we may not understand that fear. But it's a very real thing. And so this morning, we want to think about how to kill the beast of fear. How do we step in? You see, we sometimes look at folks, well, look at over one of these days. We have to play a part in that. Christ did not give the Great Commission that says, stay in the church building in all the world, and the world will finally get over their fear and come see what you're about. That's not what it says. It says to go, teach, and make disciples. We have a part to play in this. So think about a couple principles with me this morning. And I want you to turn your Bibles back to John chapter 1. If you'll have your Bible open to John chapter 1, we're going to be in that text until the very end of our lesson. We'll go somewhere else just in the last couple of minutes. But if you have your Bible open to John 1, you're going to see, we're going to see two principles. The first is, we've got to know how to keep some dominoes falling. You're going, wait a minute, you just changed illustrations. That's bad preaching. I know, but sometimes preachers mess up too. Okay? Some of you all actually play dominoes. You, you know, you, you worry actually about if this has a six or an eight or a two and you try to match it. Well, that's not what dominoes are for. Man, from the time I was like three and four years old, I had like 800 of those things. And I would set them up in lines all over the floor. You get your little toy cars out and see if they can knock the next dot. You drop them off a table. That's what, Who cares what the numbers are? You knock them over. Okay? In John chapter 1, what you really see are people falling for Jesus Christ. Some of it happens in the scripture reading we read together a few moments ago. But it really begins back before that. You remember in John chapter 1... We're introduced to John the Immerser or John the Baptist. The Gospel of John does not begin with the birth of Jesus. Matthew's account of the Gospel does. Luke's account of the Gospel does. But John really begins back before creation. In the beginning is how the book begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And the text goes on to tell us all things were made through Him. And then in verse 14, John tells us, The Word, Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And from that point on, what John does is launch immediately into the adult life, the ministry of Jesus. But he begins by telling us about the forerunner, John the Baptist, or John the Immerser. And throughout John chapter 1, what you really see are people talking about Christ and reaching other people for Christ. Notice verse 40, as John is talking about Jesus. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, 
Simon's Peter brother. Simon Peter's brother. And by the way, I believe the other person that's mentioned here is John, the writer of the gospel. He never names himself, and I believe he's the other person. But the one who's named is Andrew. John talks about Jesus. John talks up Jesus, and Andrew begins to listen. Well, what's Andrew do? Verse 41, He, that is Andrew, first found his own brother Simon, we usually call him Peter, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. So, John talks up Jesus, and Andrew follows. Andrew talks up Jesus, and Peter, or Simon, comes to listen. And as the chapter goes on, in the text we read together a little while ago, Philip eventually hears about Jesus, and he goes to Nathaniel. And, and he begins to talk up Jesus, and eventually Nathaniel turns to Jesus and follows, uh, follows as well. So John talks up Jesus, and he, if you please, falls over, and Andrew listens. Andrew talks up Jesus, and he falls over, and Peter, or Simon, follows Jesus. Philip hears about Jesus, he falls over, and Nathaniel hears about Jesus. It is as if dominoes are falling all through the chapter as people talk up Jesus. People continually say, I'm not 100% sure what's going on here, but I know whom I found, and I want you to know about Him. I want you to come hear about Him. And as far as we know, at least this early on, in the story of Christ, in the record of Christ, these people aren't going all around the world yet. They're just telling somebody they know. We'll talk more about that next week in this series, who they're actually, the actual interactions that are going on here. But they're just telling someone nearby that, that they know. Now this is not some type of simplistic formula. But I need to remember to ask myself, am I talking up Jesus and His church? Even before that, really, I need to ask myself, do people I work with, live by, people in my family, people who live down the street... My classmates at school, do they really know even I'm a believer, a disciple of Christ? It's amazing how many people never talk up Jesus and never talk up the church, and then they're amazed that nobody wants to study the Bible or come to worship. Think with me this way. Some of you maybe have been in the market for a vehicle. Now, I tried to find... A picture that was as benign as possible. As I know if I put up a Ford here, I'm losing a third of people. If I put up a Chevy here, I'm losing a third of people. And if I put up a Dodge here, I'm losing a third of people. And if, you know, I knew, I knew that, so I tried to pick a GTA. You know what that is? Generically, a GAT, I'm sorry, a generically awesome truck. Okay? So this is. Alright, let's pick, I went to Google and said, cool truck. There you go. Whatever this is. But maybe you're in the market for a truck. And you go to the dealer, and you have looked online, you know exactly what you want, and you pull up to the dealership, and there is exactly what you want. I mean, the right color, the right model, everything. And you're standing there practically drooling over this vehicle. And the dealer walks up. Do you think that dealer is going to say, I see you got your eye on that truck. You know that's going to cost you a ton in gas. And And you know that... When you go to football games on Friday night, have you been out there? You're going to try to park that thing in those parking places? Really? Is he going to do that? Well, what's he going to do? Man, look at how high up off the road you're going to be. You have never been so high up off the... And by the way, look at how well made... He, he made him take his fist and kind of go, it's going to take something like a tank to run you off the road. And he's going to point out, by the way, for a few dollars, we can add a cupboard in the back of this thing. And I see you got a wedding ring on. You married? Yeah, you got some kids. Oh, I got a couple. Oh, you got two kids. When you take the kids to Disney, man, you can take the kitchen sink. 
I mean, this is, this is, and what's he doing? Is he lying? Well, maybe about the kitchen sink, but, but, but he's simply talking up the good side of things. He knows that over time, you're gonna figure out, no vehicle is perfect. I mean, I really like it when I pull it off a lot. But eventually, I've gotta get the oil changed. Eventually the tires wear out. Eventually that new car smell, you know, you've taken the dog to the vet, it no longer is a new car smell. Okay, eventually something is different. It's just not the same. What's what's my point? When we go out and tell people about Christ and His church, are we talking it up or talking it down? You see, when people decide finally that they want to hear about the church, I need to make the decision of what I'm going to present. We cannot win people to Christ and His church by talking about how bad things are. And it just is not going to work. That plan just will not, will not fly in the least. You know, too many of us go out to eat on Sunday afternoon, or maybe we jump on Facebook when we leave, or maybe it's during the week at work, and we start to talk to somebody and we say, man, he preached 38 minutes on Sunday. And did you see that during one of the songs, the PowerPoint didn't work? I mean, come on. Would you believe that prayer lasted 22 minutes and 18 seconds? I can't believe the color of the carpet they chose, the color of the paint over there. Did you see what she wore? Do you not know it's after Labor Day or before Labor Day or whatever in the world that's supposed to be Labor Day? Does she not have that figured out? And I can't believe the elders made that decision. I can't believe we're using that Bible school. Right, by the way, would you like to go to church with me on Sunday? Who's going to say yes to that? Nobody. Nobody. Listen, are things perfect with the church? Well, there's two, two answers to that question. On the divine side of things, absolutely things are perfect with the church. God is the perfect creator. Christ is the perfect head of the church. There is a perfect plan for the organization of the church. There is a perfect plan for the autonomy of each congregation of the Lord's people. There is a perfect plan of salvation to become a member of the church. There is a perfect plan for the worship involved by Christians as we come together to worship. All of those things, the divine side of things, the pattern of things, if you will, those things are perfect. On the human side of things, hello, we're people. And sometimes, well, sometimes we're more people than others. Sometimes I'm going to say something I'm going to offend somebody else, whether I mean to or not. Sometimes somebody's going to, going to do something, or something's going to happen, or some decision's going to be made that I don't agree with. It's really going to bother me, and it's really going to you know, ruffle my feathers. But listen to me very carefully. Please listen to this. There are far more good things about the church than bad. Far more. Can I ask you to do something? Would you take just five or ten seconds and literally look around the room? Would you just do that, please? Everybody's looking at me. Uh, Not me. Around the room. Just look into the faces and tell me that there aren't far more good things than bad things. You probably just looked into the eyes or maybe in the back of the head or something of someone who taught you the gospel. You probably just looked into the eyes or the back of the head or something of someone who taught a Bible class maybe this morning, maybe 40 years ago. 
You probably looked at someone who, when you were in the hospital, sent you a card. You probably looked at someone who, when you were hurting in some way, just walked by you at church and said, hey, here's $20, take your family out to eat, I know you're hurting right now. You looked in the face of somebody, some people, who did things that other people just don't do. Why? Because there are more good things about the church than there are bad things. And it is far past time for us, when we go out and tell people about the world, we have got to stop complaining. It has to stop. We cannot go out and tell people all the terrible stuff and all the dumb decisions and all the the, the things I can't believe and say, by the way, would you like to study the Bible with me? It doesn't work that way. We have to keep the dominoes falling. We have to tell people, I don't understand everything about the church. I don't understand everything about the Bible. But let me tell you, I'm excited about it. Would you like to know more? Now with that in mind, Let's ask the question in the second principle. How do we actually kill the beast of fear? Do you remember the story of Beauty and the Beast? There's a scene where Gaston, by the way, when I saw Beauty and the Beast, there's old Gaston. I'm mad because when I saw this movie, it is as obvious as the day is long, from the shoulders and biceps and all that, that they based this character on me and I never got a royalty check. That wasn't supposed to be a joke. But do you remember the scene where Gaston is trying to rile up all the townspeople? And he starts this little song about, about how awful the beast is through the mist, through the woods, through the darkness and the shadows. It's a nightmare, but it's one exciting ride. Say a prayer, then we're there at the drawbridge of the castle, and there's something truly terrible inside. It's a beast. He's got fangs, razor sharp ones, massive paws, killer claws for the feast. Hear him roar, see him roam, but we're not coming home till he's dead, good and dead. And then he says, kill the beast. And you remember in that scene when, when Gaston is, is just getting the people all kinds of riled up, Belle tries to stop things. And she says, hang on a second. Hang on a second. I, I, I know the beast. And I know he looks that way. But she even goes so far as to say, he's my friend. Now let me point something out here. They weren't talking about two different beasts. He really did look that way. He really had been ferocious. She had been near enough to him to see that, yeah, those things are true. But there's something more there. There's a heart there. And she could call him his friend. Sometimes we have to overcome fears and preconceived notions that other people have. Not by trying to shout them down. But by trying to be Christ-like, kind, patient, and gentle. Are you still in John 1? In John 1, when Philip followed Jesus, you remember, as we read a few minutes ago, he went and found Nathanael. Notice verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, (coughs) excuse me, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, I think Nathanael is tracking along with that statement. But there's one word or one phrase that just sticks in his ears and Nathaniel just cannot believe it. Philip had said that Jesus was from where? He was from Nazareth? Really? He was from Nazareth? Nathaniel's response is so famous that we can fail to see just how rooted it was in his heart because he said in verse 46, that famous question, 
Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And it makes sense. I mean, the Old Testament had prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Even though Bethlehem was a village, I mean, okay, the Old Testament said that. But Nazareth? Wouldn't it make a whole lot more sense, considering the time and the culture, if once Jesus, once the Messiah was born, and once he was you know, trying to become this, this, this person to, to prove who he was, wouldn't it make more sense to come from Jerusalem? Or even in that time, maybe it made more sense even to come from Rome and say, I'm coming right out from under their noses. I'm coming right from Rome to set things straight. But Nazareth? The Bible tells us, by the way, that Nathaniel was from a place called Cana, and the text even says, a village. Even somewhere, someone from a village named Cana knew that Nazareth was just a hole in the road. He didn't go there. It had a terrible history, terrible reputation. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But here's what's interesting, and by the way, this is going to dovetail into next week's lesson a little bit. We're going to use the same text, but with a different emphasis. But here's what's interesting. Nathaniel raises this objection that is ingrained in his heart, even if it is somewhat unfounded. But what's Philip's response? Does Philip decide to pull out his lads to leaders debate book? I'm going to give you four points as to why this could be true. Does, does Philip say, well, I'm glad you brought that up because I needed a sermon for next Sunday. Now I can preach on why, why racism against Nazareth is wrong. Did Philip say, let me pull out my, my stone tablet here and write next week's bulletin and I'm going to write you up for even thinking that? No. What's Philip do? I can just picture him extending his hand out as he uses three words. Come. And see. Come and see. Philip had every right to basically destroy Nathaniel in the moment. But he wouldn't do it. We live in a time when people have all kinds of preconceived ideas about the Bible, about church, about Christians, about Christ, about religion in general. And it is so easy for us to just write that off or just shake our heads and walk away. But listen... Just like Gaston and Bell were talking about the same thing, so are we. We have a sweet and a pleasant view of the church because it means so much to us. It's, it's helped us in the past. It's been such a blessing to, to us and to our families. But maybe, just maybe, that other person has a very negative view because someone in the past who called themselves a Christian treated them in a very unchristian manner. Maybe they felt hurt by a Christian in the past. Maybe they've listened to people around them who've made a lot of accusations about the church that aren't true, but they just kind of said, ah, they're a cult, or they hate everybody else. Or maybe they've listened to, to the drumbeat of society and the culture around them that says that Christianity is hateful and Christianity is out of touch with the modern world. And it just starts to, easy, starts to be easy to believe that. And by the way, if I may insert parentheses here, I think this needs to be said. It may seem off track, but I promise you it's not. It is so easy for us in small-town, southern, Bible-belt America, to think we don't have to worry about that larger cultural message. After all, our kids have a lot of teachers who hold the biblical morality, and we're thankful for that. There's a cultural ethic uh, that's Christian that runs through our community, and for that we are thankful. We would have moved here if that wasn't the case, and that's true to a point, but listen to me very, very, very carefully. We are long, long past the days even in small-town southern America, where we can just lean on the culture around us as enough for our kids to love the church. Those days are long gone. 
In our hyper-connected mass media, social media culture, our children, our young people, and our young adults are hearing the drumbeat of an anti-Christian culture on a regular basis. And folks, we had better wake up and realize a lot of them are starting to believe it. Or at the very least, be influenced by it. I say all that to say this. There are so many influences, some internal, some external, that have people filled with fear about who we are and what we believe. We must never, ever compromise the truth of the gospel. We cannot sugarcoat the message. We cannot try to to soft shoe around tough issues and tough questions. But if we try to beat people over the head with the Bible, we're not going to move them off a position of fear. All Philip said was, come and see. And Nathaniel was of a good enough heart to at least take that invitation. Yes, Christians are required to fight for the faith. Jude verse 3 tells us to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12 tells us we must fight the good fight of faith. There are times when difficult conversations have to occur. True Christians are commanded to never have cowardice, but never, and listen to me carefully, never are Christians commanded to demean the character of somebody else or to defame them in any way, shape, or form. Ever. How do we kill the beast of preconceived notions and of fear in others? Come and see. We build an attitude of true, deep, abiding faith in Scripture that's tempered with love, patience, and compassion. Now, what if someone actually does come and see? Does that mean all that fear is gone? No. Remember the story of Beauty of the Beast? When Belle first comes to the castle, it's big, it's dark, it's imposing. I mean, on top of that, folks, you've got forks dancing around, you've got cupboards talking to you. This is kind of a different deal. Not exactly what you have on an everyday, uh, everyday way of life. It's all new, it's all intimidating. But I want you to think for a minute about someone who actually overcomes their fears and decides to, to come to worship, to come to church. It's scary. I think we may be surprised, by the way, of how many people even our community, have gotten up the nerve to come to church on a Sunday morning, have actually driven to the parking lot, but weren't 100% sure maybe where to go in or what they might find when they go in and figured it was easier just to go get a late breakfast somewhere. I know we live in a part of the country where, where church is part of the culture, but I'm telling you, it's still frightening for people to come into a church building, to come to a church building that they've never been in before, or to return to one they haven't been to in a long time. They don't know where to go. After all, we've got or if it's about 24 outside doors in this place. They don't know if they're overdressed or underdressed. They don't know if they'll sit in the wrong place and be told to move. They don't know if they'll say the wrong thing or sing the wrong words. They don't understand why there's not a giant grand piano sitting down here or a giant pipe organ somewhere. They don't understand what ready recollection means. Sometimes I don't understand what ready recollection means. What are these gold trays sitting down here in front? And when they pass those things around, am I supposed to eat that too and drink that too? What's going on here? Am I supposed to give? Am I supposed to not give? Folks, it's a scary thing. And the fear is real. We know the culture. We know the language. We know the flow of things. It's almost part of our DNA. But none of us started out with that knowledge. Even if we were, as we say, raised in the church, we still had to learn how things went. My point is this. Even when someone comes in the building, the talking up and the encouraging does not stop. We must continue to kill the beast of fear and preconceived ideas. Would you turn to Acts chapter 14 and then we'll close. In Acts chapter 14, near the end of the chapter... 
Paul and Barnabas are giving a report to Christians in a place called Antioch. They're returning from a trip. We usually call it a missionary journey. And they're talking about what's going on. But look back up in the chapter very briefly with me. In verse 5, at a place called Iconium, there were some who threatened to kill them, stone them to death. Skip down to verse 19, at a place called Lystra. Paul was stoned by the Jewish leaders to the point he had to be dragged out of the city because they thought he was dead. It was that way throughout this trip. We'll go, we'll skip the details for time's sake. Everywhere they went, it wasn't all roses to say the least. It was very rough to put it mildly. But now, near the end of the chapter, they're reporting on their work at this place called Antioch. Do they complain about the, the, the travel conditions? Oh, that, that ship sure was rough. Boy, those, those mules we rolled, boy, that was, that's a tough day. Do they talk about how, even the persecution, they talk about how awful they've been treated and how, how terrible things were. Not in the least. I want you to see what's said in Acts 14, verse 27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, them and how He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. I can tell you in all honesty, when I was putting the final touches on this lesson and typed those words onto the PowerPoint, I literally stopped and cried. You want to know why? Think about what Paul had been through. We had to rush through it for time's sake, but think about what he had been through. And when he comes back to the church... He doesn't start moaning and groaning about how awful he, oh, woe is me. They don't like anybody like me out there. What does he say? There was somebody willing to listen and praise God. We got to tell him about it. And I complain when the air conditioning doesn't work. Or they just don't do anything for us old folks around here anymore. Or man, I don't know when he's ever going to preach a sermon on, on this subject again. I, I haven't heard anything like that in years. Or he preached longer today than normal and I had a roast in the oven. It's probably burned by now. They tried to kill Paul. They tried to kill him. And all he could talk about Well, let me tell you how wonderful my God is. Folks, I don't know how many people are here this morning. It looks like a great crowd to me, and thank you for being here. What what a great day this has been so far, amen? Amen? But folks, there's hundreds of people out there who aren't here. And if I go out there and talk about how the air conditioning doesn't work, or how it's a little hot, or how so-and-so wore something, or how this person didn't talk to me, the preacher didn't shake my hand, folks, I want to tell people how wonderful my God is! Because somebody out there, somebody out there, has been waiting for someone to reach a hand out. And say, I don't know what you people believe up there. All I know about you is you've got that big church building up on the hill. That's all I know. And they're waiting for somebody to say, just come and see. 
And let me tell you about the greatest Savior this world has ever known. And the greatest people He's ever put on this planet. That's how you kill the beast. One last thing. It can't just be an amen in this room. It has to be when I'm at school. It has to be when I'm at work. It has to be when I'm on Facebook. It has to be when I'm writing letters to people. It has to be when I'm emailing people. It has to be when I'm walking down the street. It has to be with my family. It has to be with my friends. It has to be with people that I play ball with. It has to be with everyone. Because every single person deserves to hear the gospel. And if I don't tell them. If I don't tell them. And that beast will never die. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about what it takes to break that cycle of those preconceived ideas. But for this morning, let me ask this question. Who is it that needs to kill the beast of fear? Who's even in this room? Who's taken the step to be here? And maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe it took everything within you to actually come to a church building on a Sunday morning. Praise God you're here. But it's time to put one last step of fear out of the way. And let God, through what He has done through His Son Jesus on the cross, take all your sins away by being willing to confess that His Son is Lord and Savior and being baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Who is this morning who's here who is a Christian? but who for some reason hasn't been a while or, or, or comes every once in a while, but something has been keeping you from, from being everything for God that you need to be. And it's time to step out in fear and say, I'm willing again to talk about Christ, to confess Him with my words and with my life. Or who is this morning who's here as a Christian and says, I, I, don't, I don't think there's any necessarily big, big sins in my life, but I just need some encouragement to do better. Because I haven't been talking up Jesus as much as I should. I haven't been talking up His church as much as I should. And I know someone that I need to talk to. And I'm asking the church to pray with me. To give me that courage. That encouragement of heart that I need. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And let that song touch your heart. Let that song touch your soul. And make the decision you need to make to become a Christian. To become a more faithful Christian. Or to simply say, brothers and sisters, I need some encouragement. Will you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?